Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. World leaders are talking big about global warming, but is it, can it, make any difference? Let's get to the bottom line. Recently, President Joe Biden said that climate change and its impact on our lives and environment are at code red. Those are really strong words. The big question is whether countries and companies and ordinary citizens are serious about the response, or are they just casual? We see big companies committing to net zero emissions targets by 2050 and huge reductions by 2030. Even airlines and oil companies and banks and their customers. And soon world leaders will be meeting in Glasgow at the UN Climate Change Conference to assemble new commitments in the fight to manage and slow climate change. But listen, what's real? What's public relations and what's greenwashing? What's working and what's not? Today we're talking to Roger Martella, the chief sustainability officer at General Electric, one of the biggest corporations in the United States. He's the former general counsel of the Environmental Protection Agency, which is the U.S. governmental agency that enforces the national environmental laws. And Rachel Frazen, the environment and energy correspondent for The Hill. Great that you're both here with me. I want to show you a little sound clip of President Biden. Let's listen. The extreme weather events that we have seen in every part of the world, and you all know it and feel it, represent what the Secretary General has rightly called code red for humanity. And the scientists and experts are telling us that we're fast approaching a point of no return in a literal sense. How do you feel? Are the president's words flamboyant? Are they overdone? Or do you feel we are getting to something we need to take serious action on? I don't think there's any real debate. Um, we're committed to innovating technology, making sure we're taking all the steps we can to be part of the solution to addressing climate change. We feel the sense of urgency. We see the notion need to act. We recognize the need to be credible in this. But ultimately, it's going to be innovation. It's going to be technology that solves climate change. And companies are prioritizing the investments to make sure that they can be part of the solution, deliver the technology the world needs so that we can succeed on the issues that the president is identifying. You know, GE is a huge company. You've got a medical division. You've got, like, big engines. You've got yep. energy. And you are the companies. You were just made re recently chief sustainability officer. And, and we talked a little bit and said, hey, the first thing i got to do is go measure stuff. How's it going? What does a CSO do? Um, what, what are you finding as you work within a company as large as General Electric that's trying to get serious about this? What are you finding within your own company? You know, we really have two fundamental goals when we're talking about sustainability. One is we want to make sure we're being part of the solution, that we're contributing the technology the world needs to solve these issues. And two, we want to make sure we're being considerate of our own impacts, that we're always improving our impacts to our people, to our communities, and to the planet. On the first part, being part of the solution, we're a 129-year-old company. We've always had a larger purpose of looking to improve the quality of life for people all around the world. We work in 170 countries, and our businesses are aligned to the three most pressing sustainability challenges, the energy transition and climate change, making sure we can deliver precision health care to people everywhere, and addressing the future of flight so we can keep people connected in more sustainable ways. So we're really passionate. We're really excited about this opportunity to rise to this challenge, as we've always done, to innovate this technology. But to your point about measuring things, we know as we do that, we're going to have impacts along the way. We want to be very transparent with those impacts, climate change impacts, environmental impacts, human rights, safety, the philanthropy, how we're lifting our communities. We want to be very transparent every step along the way. We want to show we're constantly improving our impacts. And if we're not always necessarily improving something, we're going to explain why. We're going to hold ourselves accountable, and we're going to be transparent in sharing that information. 
Thank you for that. Rachel, you know, one of the things I've been trying to get a lot of is what DEFCON level we really are at as a nation. What are we at as citizens? What are we as at companies, the government? And I have to say, I mean, just to be honest, that if we weren't fighting about mask wearing, I think we would be fighting over climate politics. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, and you, know, you write this fantastic overnight newsletter on, on energy and the environment. What's your sense of it? I mean, are we, you know, in your world, taking this challenge seriously? Are we tilting towards Glasgow and the, and the next UN uh, uh, climate conference seriously? Well, I think that there has been a lot of rhetoric that shows that they're at least trying to take it seriously, but I think it all comes down to what they can actually do. Like for the Biden administration, you know, they have these goals and they put it out there and they're trying to get Congress to sign on to their agenda. But, you know, you, Congress is very much controlled by just a couple of moderate voters right now, a, lot of, a couple of moderate senators. So it's really how far can you push those two people? You know, that's a lot of what it comes down to. But isn't I mean, those two people, I mean, part of Kristen Cinema, you know, from Arizona, the others, mm -hmm. Joe Manchin West, for West Virginia. And look, I've known senators from West Virginia for a long time. And, and, and West Virginia is this state. It's a coal mining state, but it's also mm -hmm. a bit of a cliche. Why haven't we done more to figure out how we take workers in one part of the energy field and give them opportunities in, in, in another part of the energy field? Well, I feel like one of the big reasons that we haven't done this is that um, until a few years ago, a lot of people weren't really talking about this. It wasn't at the top of the agenda. And I think that folks now are seeing climate as a jobs opportunity the way they didn't before. And I also think that in the previous administration, quite frankly, they didn't seem to care very much about addressing climate change. And I think that that... You want to mean that the, la the Trump administration did... Yeah. Yes. It, it, I, I think that I think leaving the Paris Climate Accord is, you know, a real right. underscoring of the point you're making. Roger, let me ask you this. And one of the reasons I was so happy you were here today is I want our viewers to get an understanding of some of the real steps that it comes. I mean, it kind of differentiate between fads or, you know, the, the, the notion you can get a lot of people and say, hey, why don't we just go to renewables and everything? And when you kind of look at the mathematical equation of that, we don't have enough renewable capacity to do that tomorrow. Try to give our audience an understanding of what are the big steps we should be thinking about. Climate change is a global challenge. It's a global problem. We need a global solution to solve it. So no one country, no one company, we're in 170 countries. No one company can solve it. No one country can solve it. So we have to approach it globally. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to climate change to the energy markets. And that's where kind of bringing in more tailored solutions to understanding how can we help countries decarbonize, how can we help utilities decarbonize, while making sure at the same time we're providing resilient energy, reliable energy, affordable energy to the billion people in the world who lack access. So we see it in three ways. One is agree with your proposition. You want to grow renewables as quickly, as aggressively as you can. There should be no debate doubt about that. Let's, let's grow renewables. Start there. But there's limitations so on that. So everybody can agree on that. We would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, we, we hope that's the least controversial part. We start there, but there's limits. There's limits in the U.S., there's limits in the EU, even more palpable limits when you go to other places of the world that we can talk about. But you want to, you want to move towards a renewable economy. How do, you, how do you connect that? You have to focus on the grid, probably the most understated issue that people talk about. On the, the grid? Right, the grid What itself. elements of the grid? How do you... The grid for the, our viewers is the grid energy grid, right? Exactly. Yeah. How do you bring renewables online while at the same time keeping energy resilient, keeping it reliable at the same time? And, and something we're struggling with in the U.S., something the EU is struggling today, imagine other parts of the world how hard that is. We're focused on the really hard stuff. We're focused on how do you take variable energy from renewable energy that's far apart, 
many distances away? And how do you make it more reliable so it flows like conventional fossil fuel energy? Then the third part of the equation is, is the role of natural gas. And, and this may be the most controversial part for some thinkers, some leaders on this, but we think this is very straightforward. The world needs a foundation, it needs a base load of natural gas to provide the foundation to grow renewables, to build that resilient grid. And we know that today natural gas is very efficient, half the emissions of coal. We're looking to address methane at the, the top end of it. But longer term, as you point out, we know that um, these turbines can be decarbonized long term. We want to take the carbon out of the turbines by using hydrogen as a fuel, something you can actually do today. And also looking at carbon capture and sequestration, taking the carbon out at the back end of the turbines, sequestering it, putting it back in the ground so that we can continue to have the reliable turbines to, to enable the foundation for renewable energy. Rachel, one of the things, I, you know, I read your newsletter a lot. I just think part of the politics of this is there's a built-in skepticism that mm -hmm. a lot of people have. There may be skepticism if you're in the oil and gas industry or maybe you're on one part of the political equation. You think anything that's green is bad, you know, for your politics or whatever. And I'm just wondering, with a skeptic's eye, what are you worried about in these discussions as we tilt towards Glasgow? What's real and what's not? Um, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first thing is a lot of companies are pledging to not have zero emissions, but net zero emissions, which basically means... So, so say it again. There's not, not zero, but net zero, which okay. basically means that the sum, when you add up all of your emissions and all the things you do to take emissions out of the atmosphere, that number equals zero. Right. right. And so one way to do that is through carbon offsetting, which is through activities like planting trees in other parts of the world. And there's some skepticism about the extent to which that's effective, the extent to which there is fraud or double counting, how long those trees will stay there. So I think for those reasons, you know, a lot of folks would say that companies should be more focused on reducing their own emissions and reaching near zero rather than these net zero pledges if they can get their own emissions down. Another thing that we're seeing, there have been a lot of reports lately about um, companies lobbying against uh, clean energy provisions or big uh, bills like the big infrastructure bill in Congress that um, would make big transformational investments on climate change because they're lobbying against them, maybe because of the climate provisions, maybe because of other provisions in them. But ultimately, even though they are trying to reduce their own emissions, they are, you know, just kind of blocking climate action from Congress or working to block it. Um, a third thing also is that as some companies um, try to add renewable energy to their portfolio or take it out of the, or take fossil fuels out of their portfolio, they're just buying or selling things that are existing. So if a big fossil fuel company sells off some of their oil assets to a smaller company, they have a greener portfolio, but that oil is still being produced just by somebody else. So a little sleight of hand there. Mm -hmm. The first one, though, you talked about, I've just, you know, I've heard a lot about this, and I'm like, well, you know, how are you going to, like, I, I just know we don't live in a light, switch, a light switch binary society where tomorrow mm -hmm. is totally different. And you want know, to kind of look at it, I said, you know, I'd much rather get to net zero if you're making trade-offs and people come in the right direction than not try at all. But, but you know, so thank you, you know, thank you for that. But another the, the, the part of this that I've been thinking about, big stakeholders, and, you know, sometimes we have a lot of companies. You know, I've been spending time with, you know, looking at small Arab Gulf nations like Qatar or the UAE or others are actually trying to be players in this business. And they're fossil fuel-based uh, industry, but their sovereign wealth funds are investing in renewables. So, you know, applause for that. That's great. But on the other side, you know, when you look at uh, national governments like India or Brazil, um, developing nations that feel like, okay, America and Europe already went up the industrial scale. We already put a lot of carbon in the air. Now we're trying to restrict them, and they feel as if that is going to harm their own development. Roger, what is our answer there? Because I think that a lot of people say, why should we 
cut back coal if China's continuing to build coal plants? Why should we do this unless India is robustly embracing the same kind of climate target? What do you, I mean, I know this is not your job, but I would love to kind of get you without your GE hat looking at the international dimensions of this, of how we get more people aligned so that you're not just creating greater um, environmentally responsible provisions in one society and escaping them in a different country. Your question's hugely important. It goes to an important theme of equity. How do we do this in a way that's equitable, that makes sure that people have strong economic opportunities, that they have the opportunity to be protected from climate change, but also the opportunity to have access to energy, transportation, health care, things like that. Steve, I go back to the United Nations. The United Nations developed a set of principles called the Sustainable Development Goals. Right. There are 17 principles. And they focus on all the same things we're talking about, climate change, environmental protection. But they're, they're wrapped around this theme of equity, and equity in a very broad sense, making sure that there's, there's a, a lack of discrimination, that people have access to economic opportunities, that people have access to strong health care, to transportation, and things like that. I think we have to make sure that these sustainable development goals are at the forefront of the type of policymaking. And it goes back to the point I made earlier. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. You have to take these themes of renewable energy, of a strong, resilient grid, of baseload power, including natural gas and some fossil fuels, to make sure you're using that in an equitable way that both drives down emissions but also preserves the opportunities, economic opportunities, that we see the U.N. supporting in the Sustainable Development Goals. Fascinating. Let me ask you an unfair question. I had told you I was going to ask you this, but <laughs> it just turns out your company is the largest energy provider in France. Maybe you're also the biggest energy provider in other countries, but I don't know which those are. But in France, you're a very big deal. In America, you're a very big deal. You're, you, you have systems in those. Do you find things in these different states that you think we could learn from each other, the way France is doing it, or things that we shouldn't learn from France, you know, in terms of how you bring together the provision of energy to the citizens that, and, and companies and whatnot that need it in environmentally uh, helpful ways, you know, designed for the future. Are there things that America's doing that France could learn? Are there things that France is doing that we could learn from? No, our technology provides one-third of the world's energy, so we have to know these markets like the back of our hand. We have to understand how, what we can learn from them and what we want to avoid. We've taken a really deep dive into a number of countries that represent larger macroeconomic situations. And one thing we've learned, maybe moving on from your France example, is when you look at certain developing economies, coal is still a player there. Coal is still viable, and there's lots of folks who would like to build coal for these countries. So you have to be not, not so much a policy issue in the U.S., not a policy issue in France. Coal is an alternative. But we're working many places of the world. Coal is not only the alternative, it may be the preference. So how are we learning examples from these other places that we can reduce their emissions, grow renewables, but at the same time avoid the temptation to, to go the easy route and use coal and create other types of relationships and things like that. So this micro-type approach is, is really key. This is probably one of the things I might bicker with in terms of some of the policy we're seeing is, it's going to sound like a broken record, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. We have to understand these issues on a country-by-country -country level. We all have the same goals. We want to get to the same place. But how you use technology and how you support these technologies is all very dependent on those local circumstances. And we need to invest more energy in understanding that. Rachel, as you write, I, I know that you are hit by lots of entrepreneurs, small companies say, hey, look at us. We're contributing. You know, I look at this, the sort of, you know, trap of looking at little boutiques that may have things mm -hmm. that scale. I'd just be interested in your, your map as you look at what's happening out there. 
you know, in the churn of creativity of folks, you know, you know, the Department of Energy has a group called ARPA-E that's helping mm -hmm. uh, uh, smaller firms get through their financing challenges to try to put new ideas on the table. Is there anything that pops for you that we, you know, our viewers should sort of look at on uh, whether, uh, whether they should be optimistic about or should, should we be cynical and pessimistic about reaching these goals? I think it's too soon to say. I mm. think that it's possible. Uh, you know, the UN, the IPCC report, the report where people were saying this was a code red for humanity, I mean, look, it says that we will hit 1.5 degrees of warming ahead of industrial levels at some point in this century, um, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So basically, um, we're going to be a little bit hotter than we were before we started uh, massive scale using energy the way that we do now. Um, and we're going to reach an important threshold. But we can bend the curve back around and cool down a little bit lower so that at year 2100, we're not there if the world can get to net zero around the middle of the century, so in 2050 or in the 2050s. I mean, I just want to put, put an underscore in this because what you're saying, I mean, there's this journal, and I, you know, I trust science uh, as a journal. It's a, it's a journal called Science that says a child born today is mm -hmm. going to have five times the level of natural disasters in his or her life than a child born 150 years ago. So that's a measurable difference mm -hmm. in the violent weather phenomena or other dimensions of natural disasters. I guess it could be, you know, climate broadly, droughts, you know, in, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in that arena. So that to me sounds similarly. But I also, you know, know um, that this is a time where if Galileo were alive today, he'd probably still be found guilty. So, you know, it, you know, it's this tension between awareness and science and consciousness. And I'm, I'm interested, Roger, in how, you know, even within your company, your company's huge. How many employees do you have? 174,000. 174,000 people. I mean, so when you build awareness, when you kind of get people to sort of talk about, it, do you find the awareness levels, even among your employees or the communities you're serving, that there is a sense of tension and a sense of purpose and need in this area? So I'm going to be the optimist if I can. Okay. And I'm going to speak for, I think, the, the sense of purpose we feel as a company. There is a lot of debate. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns around climate policy and what countries are going to do. There's a lot of optimism, a lot of passion about the role of companies doing this regardless, that we've made these commitments, our competitors have made these commitments, our broader, our suppliers, our customers, we've, we've all made these commitments. And the notion of using innovation and technology, policy would be great. There's ways policy can help. We hope policy doesn't get in the way, but, but we've committed to do this. And I, I, knowing our employees, knowing our engineers, knowing our scientists, we feel passionately optimistic about the role we have to play and, and knowing regardless we're on a path to figure this out. We, we can't tell you exactly how to get there. We have engineers right now. If I could take you through our lab, I'd love to do that. They're working on technologies that maybe 10, 12, 15 years from now we may or may not use, but they know we have to be thinking that far ahead. We have to be looking around the corner, experimenting today for where we need to be in 2035 with the hopes that we're going to be taking things to the next level, but making progress in the meantime. I mean, in your gut and realistically, can we do carbon sequestration or carbon capture at scale? Yes. I, I, I'm, I feel optimistic we're going to get there to the scale. The technology is, you know, in various stages. We have to, it's not so much about just how do you capture it from the back of a turbine or from the back of, of an industrial facility. How do you transport it? How do you sequester it? What's the safest ways to do so? Is there some use for it along the way? Um, one of the concepts, Steve, I mean, I mean just, just in reference, a lot of my environmental friends who used to be very pro-carbon uh, capture and carbon sequestration are not so pro now. Is there something messy or complicated about it? 
I, I think there's a there's a notion that if you if you have carbon captures, it perpetuates fossil fuels. I think maybe that's I don't think there's so much a concern about the actual technology. It's the notion that it makes it easier for coal and maybe natural gas for some folks who aren't in favor of that. But right. the, the, the concept that's really optimistic right now is something called carbon hubs, the notion that you're going to have hubs in geologically attractive areas that you can do carbon capture from power plants, from industrial facilities, direct air capture, pulling carbon out of the air, and finding good industrial clusters to be able to do this all in the same place in a way that kind of geologically makes sense. So that's where this is going to the next level, and really amazing people focused on this technology. What's the next coolest technology you can tell us about that's beyond that? I think the two things we think are, are super cool is, is it's not climate change, it's, but sustainability is healthcare. And half the world's population lacks access to healthcare. This is a huge equitable issue. The way we can make healthcare more accessible, more portable, more reachable for more people, use artificial intelligence to get diagnosis sooner, mm -hmm. that's just amazing to think how technology can help people all around the world who are underserved for healthcare. And then the other part that's, that's really exciting and interesting is, is aviation. Um, you can imagine from an engineering perspective, aviation presents its own challenges. It, you know, safety trumps everything there um, and, and probably not as far along in terms of some of the energy sectors, in terms of having some of those clear-cut technologies. So we're, we're, we're super passionate to be thinking about the next generation of air travel, keeping people connected, doing it in a more sustainable way. Thank you. That, you know, back on the climate side, Rachel, you know, as you look at what's going to happen at the beginning of October, November, what are the fault lines right now as you look at it? Does it, I mean, I, I honestly look at it as a very, very important meeting, but if you were to take the temperature in the U.S. media right now, it doesn't pop very high. So is it going to be a pretty boring and drawl uh, event, or do you think we will wake up and say, wow, uh, something big has been achieved? How are you gaming it out? I mean, I guess it depends. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what they are or aren't going to negotiate. Um, what I can say is that I feel like the, a lot of countries have put forward commitment in recent months, like the U.S. has said basically that we're going to cut our emissions in half by uh, the end of the decade when compared to, I believe, it's 2005 levels. Um, so, I mean, that is cutting our emissions in half is not a small feat, and a lot of other countries have made pledges. But there are also some holdouts. Like, um, other countries say they're going to continue, are trying to slash their emissions by 2030. China is trying to increase their emissions, and they are saying they're going to peak and then come down to uh, net zero around 2060. Right. So, you know, they are, I mean, don't get me wrong, China is taking some steps. They're restricting their coal. They, I think, have stopped, are going to stop financing overseas coal. There was an announcement about that recently. But, you know, there are still some holdouts. So, so Paris Climate Accords almost fell apart. There's a great story of President Obama cornering, you know, <laughs> India and China and think, mm -hmm. gut feeling, do you think we're going to get a deal in Glasgow to, to, to proceed, go on? I think there will be a deal. I don't know how good or bad that deal is going to be, and I feel like a lot of countries might say, well, look, we've already upped our commitments. I don't know how much more we can up our commitments, but I think there will be a deal. Well, Roger Martella, Chief Sustainability Officer at General Electric, and Rachel Frazen, Energy and Environment Correspondent for The Hill, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having us. So what's the bottom line? Can we stall and reverse the cooking of our world? Can we slow the obvious impacts of shifts in climate, which are scientifically linked to the carbon that you and I and all of us are releasing into the atmosphere? Will electric vehicles replace diesel and gas cars and trucks? Will coal disappear, even in China? The hard reality is that fossil fuels will be with us for a long time, and renewable energy is getting there, but slowly. It's not a light switch. And what we heard today from my guests is that there are real options, and there are fake ones. Until there's a global consensus that this is a code red moment in our existence, 
It means we'll be pretty casual about all of this. And that means ineffective. And that means Earth will keep cooking until we're serious. And that's the bottom line. Thank you.